Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 5. Last week, I wrapped up the episode with the Western tribes hounding the Eastern ones about their building an altar before departing Canaan. After all the Canaanites, or maybe just most, were defeated and the land was finally allotted between the tribes of Israel. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm picking up in Joshua chapter 23, when the narrative skips ahead many years. And with that, let's get started. In the beginning of chapter 23, in the very first sentence, we're told that the events that followed were a long time after everything before this chapter. By now, Joshua was old and advanced in years, and he summoned the people to address them. What he tells them was nearly the same thing that he told the eastern tribes in the previous chapter, when they were headed home after the Canaan conquest. He told them that God helped them defeat the Canaanites, just as he promised, to obey the laws given to them by Moses, do not mix with the Canaanites, and certainly do not adopt any of their religious practices. They cannot marry Canaanite women, as if they do, God will not continue to drive them out. And pausing for a second, the words chosen by Joshua here, that there were still Canaanites to be driven out, indicate that the Canaanites were still living in Canaan. Some of them remained to be defeated. Unpausing. Joshua warns the Israelites that the remaining Canaanites could prove to be a trap for them. The actual quote is a bit descriptive. The Canaanites will be a snare and a trap for you, a scourge on your sides and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from this good land that the Lord your God has given you. This is very similar, though much more textual efficient, than the warning given by Moses in his three speeches as he was about to ascend Mount Nebo and die. In fact, to a large degree, history was repeating itself. Joshua then tells the people he is about to die, saying he is about to go the way of all the earth, but quickly circles back to God's promises, reminding them that God never failed to fulfill his promises. And with this came another warning, that God also promised destruction if the people turned away from him and they too will perish from the land. And that's the chapter. But before moving on, there's something else that needs to be pointed out. Starting about at this point in the text, the word Israelite takes on a different meaning. In this part of Joshua, it's used to refer to the tribes living west of the Jordan. So, everyone except the 2.5 tribes to the east with the possible additional exception of the Levites. Joshua 24 begins with the book's namesake, Still Alive. He gathers all of the tribes at Shechem. This was a city in the north-central part of the territory, west of the Jordan, about midway, north and south, between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. When they assembled here, Joshua gave the people the Reader's Digest version of their history. And this is worthy of a paraphrased quote 
as there are a few nuanced differences from the longer history worth pointing out. Long ago, your ancestors, Terah, and his sons Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates and served other gods. As far as I can find in the text, that's the first mention that Abraham was from a different religious background. Then I, and in this part of the text, the I is God. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And this is what I mean, that it's a very condensed history. Not a single mention of Joseph or his brothers. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in its midst. And afterwards, I brought you out. When I brought your ancestors out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your ancestors with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. When they cried out to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. Afterwards, you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I handed them over to you, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then King Balak, son of Zippar of Moab, set out to fight against Israel. He sent and invited Balaam, son of Beer, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam, therefore he blessed you. So I rescued you out of his hand. When you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, the citizens of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I handed them over to you. I sent the hornet ahead of you. And this mention of a hornet is new and worthy of my next pause. In the New Revised Standard, the word hornet earned a disappointing footnote, and that was that the true meaning of the word in Hebrew is uncertain. In that version, it's also the only place in the entirety of the Bible that a hornet is found. The same hornet is used in the NIV in King James, just without the footnote. Curiosity got the better of me about this pest, so I searched through a few other translations. The Amplified parenthetically called it the terror of you, meaning the fear of the impending arrival of the Israelites. This makes sense. Just think back to the woman in Jericho, Rahab, who I'll cover at the end of this episode. She had heard about their exploits before they got there. But still, in my mind's eye, a God-sent hornet, that's a better visual. Every other version I looked at called it a hornet. Back in Joshua's recounting of the history, he reminds the people that God drove out before them the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and towns that you had not built, and you live in them. 
You eat the fruit of the vineyards and the olive yards that you did not plant. All of this pointing out that the Israelites killed off the Canaanites, moved into their houses, and took over their already tilled and planted agricultural land, just like they were told would happen back in Exodus. Joshua tells them they must choose who they will serve. The God that has blessed them so much are foreign gods, but as for he and his house, they will serve the Lord. The people answer him that they recognize what God has done for them and will not turn their backs on him, but will serve him, if only. Then Joshua warns them again about the consequences of serving foreign gods. He tells them to live up to their word, to put away their foreign gods, and to serve and obey the one true God. It was with this, and at Shechem, that the covenant was renewed. According to the text, he wrote it in the book of the law of God. This is generally thought to refer to the Pentateuch, as recorded by Moses. He then took a large stone and set it up there under the oak in the sanctuary of the Lord, telling the people that the stone will memorialize their renewed covenant. They were all then sent to their homes. After this, Joshua died when he was 110 years old. He was buried on his own land at Timnasserah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gosh. The next sentence tells us that the people remained faithful to God all throughout Joshua's life, even through the lives of the elders who outlived Joshua. Then the history circles way back, all the way to Genesis 50 and Exodus 1, the death of Joseph. And a reminder, Joseph too died when he was 110 years old. When he died, he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Exodus 13 reads that Moses took with him the bones of Joseph, who had required a solemn oath of the Israelites, saying, God will surely take notice of you, and then you must carry my bones with you from here. And Moses did which gets us to Joshua 24. It was here, finally, some 400 years, give or take, after Joseph's death, that he finally makes it back to his homeland. The bones of Joseph, which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt, were buried at Shechem, in the portion of ground that Jacob had bought from the children of Hammer, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. Once again, the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim were named in a singular reference. Finally, in the last verse of chapter 23, Eliezer, the son of Aaron, and the second high priest dies too. He was buried at Gibeah, the town of his son Phinehas, which had been given to him in the hill country of Ephraim. And with all of these deaths and all of these burials, the book of Joshua wraps up. Which, of course, means I need to circle back to start covering the history of the people, places, and things found in it. The first place on this list would naturally be the city of Jericho, but I covered the history of that city in Chapter 5, Episode 22, released in February of this year. 
which means something to those of you listening in real time. For listeners who discovered the podcast later, it's in 2020, and seems like it was 20 years ago. As for Jericho, it was the first city defeated by the Israelites after they crossed the Jordan. But it isn't the first place mentioned in the text that I haven't covered. That belongs to the place Shatim, a name shared with a small tree found in the region, a tree that provided wood used in the construction of the tabernacle, among many other things. As for the place with the same name, it likely had an abundance of the trees, at least at that time. There is a modern-day village in southern Israel with the name, but its location is too far from where the Israelites would have been encamped at this time. This village, though, in 2019, had a whopping population of four. As for the place that's mentioned in the text, we do know a little about it. It's modernly known as Abala, and located at about the same place as Kerbet el Frayen in the country of Jordan. This place is east of the Jordan River in what was Moab. More specifically, it's about 7 miles, 12 kilometers, north of the Dead Sea. Do note that all of the reference points are based on the locations of these bodies of water today. Rivers change course, and the Dead Sea has grown and shrank over time. The 6th century AD Madaba map placed an unlabeled icon at the spot. Now, to be clear, it has not been positively identified as the biblical Shatim, and this association is more about the name Abala being close enough to the Hebrew Abel Shatim, which could have been the longer form of the shortened named Shatim. Obviously, this is the concurrent threading of several needles but there aren't really any other places accepted in the mainstream that Shatim may be, so I'll just run with it. And before the detractors write in, let me acknowledge a few things. First, no biblical theology relies on its exact placement. It's more of a curiosity. And next, if it wasn't at this exact spot, given everything else mentioned in the text, it was really close. With that caveat out of the way, the place. The word Abel Shatim roughly translates from Hebrew as meaning the meadow of the acacia, with the Shatim tree being a larger group of the species, with acacias being a member of that group. Probably a better way to phrase it is that acacias are a subspecies of the Shatim family. Specific and general naming terminology. The place Abel Shatim was mentioned in Numbers 33 as a place in the plains of Moab where the Israelites encamped. While here, God told Moses to tell the Israelites many things, including that, after crossing the Jordan, they will drive out the Canaanites. A potentially different place, Ha Shatim, was mentioned earlier in Numbers, along with a mention much later in Micah. Though, in some translations, the Ha was dropped, so the place named was one and the same as that found in Joshua. And since I'm covering the various translations, and mention ones different from my usual earlier in the episode, I'll continue that tradition, if just for a second. 
The word shittim is used in most popular translations, which include the Geneva Bible, the Jerusalem Bible, the King James, the NIV, and the one I use most frequently, the New Revised Standard. But several others translate it as shittim, with an E instead of an I. These include the complete Jewish Bible and the Orthodox Jewish Bible. But that's not the only variation. The Good News translation renders it as the Acacia Valley, while the New King James Version marks the place as the Acacia Grove. What does all of this mean? Whether with the prefix Abel or Ha, or without, more than likely, these were all the same place. Somewhere on the southern Jordan, north of the Dead Sea, east of the river, and close to the city of Jericho, though on the other side of the river. The Israelites encamped here during their 40 years of wandering, which means I likely need to point something out. The general conception, at least from the way, way outside looking in, was that the wandering took place far away from where they would later settle, with many thinking the entire journey was in Sinai. Now, that this is not true should have been noticed far before now, but I never really pointed it out. When the Israelites defeated the Amorite king Og, they were nowhere near Sinai, and instead closer to the modern country of Syria. Instead, by the time the 40 years were up, and it was time to cross the Jordan and enter in Canaan, two and a half tribes had already settled east of the Jordan, and the other tribes had visited the place called Shittim several times. In essence, the wandering was likely more of a semi-nomadic lifestyle. The bigger issue wasn't where they were, but why they were there. After the spies, which included Joshua and Caleb, returned from their spying in Canaan, God was disappointed in their response. He didn't condemn them to wandering. Instead, he forbade them from entering the promised land. At many points after this, they were literally encamped on the other side of the Jordan River, a river that during the dry season could easily be forded. Jacob had done it with his family when returning from his uncle Laban's home, as had countless people before. In fact, while in those 40 years, the Israelites lived among the Moabites, who certainly traversed back and forth across the river but the Israelites weren't allowed, all due to their lack of faith. During their wandering in the Pentateuch, it was here at Shittim that the Israelite men began to intermarry with Moabite women and adopt their religion, to the point of worshipping the Canaanite deity Baal Peor. In the same incident, and therefore at Shittim, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, and the grandson of Aaron lashed out, His righteous anger led to the establishment of the Aaronic priesthood. This is the same Phineas I covered earlier in the episode that became the high priest when his father died. And it was at this place that Joshua encamped just before giving the order to the people to finally cross the Jordan and enter Canaan. About the same time, it's thought that while it was known as Shittim to the Hebrew-speaking Israelites, the local Moabites may have called it Hamam, or Hamam may have been a Moabite village 
that was near where the Israelites encamped. Nothing really conclusive, though. Fast forward about a millennium and a half, and there's Josephus. He mentioned a contemporary town called Abdullah, which translates as a place crowded with palm trees. And I do know that a palm is a dramatically different tree than an acacia, with one needing abundant water and the other surviving in dry deserts. But about 1,500 years had passed, time allowing the introduction of irrigation from the nearby Jordan River. Just to make sure his bases were covered, the ancient Jewish-Roman historian mentioned that there weren't only date palm trees there, but also the acacia tree, helping to solidify it as the place mentioned in both the Pentateuch and the book of Joshua. Which begs the slightly related question, how did those date palms get there? Josephus claimed that they were planted there by none other than Herod the Great. Why? Well, Herod had his winter palace in the nearby Jericho, and date palms make for a tasty treat. I'll have more on the dates from this region in just a minute. Josephus placed the town 60 stadia from the river. As you should know by now, measurements in that era weren't exceedingly well-defined, and in our modern parlance would better be described as suggestions than static. But I'll try the conversion anyway. 60 stadia is just under 7 miles, about 11 kilometers. And this region tends to be flat, with a gentle slope from the Sea of Galilee in the north to the Dead Sea in the south. All of this meaning 7 miles is not very far. Josephus would identify Abdullah as the place where Moses delivered his three speeches found in Deuteronomy. One of Josephus's contemporary was the Roman Pliny the Elder, who also developed a taste for the dates from the city, writing that they were the perfect combination of juicy and sweet. Sounds like an ad. The produce apparently retained this quality, as nearly three centuries later, Roman Emperor Theodosius extolled how good they were. Do note that he called them Nicholas Dates. And that name is worth a short pause to point something else out. The name Nicholas, at least in this context, likely refers to the region, which was the home of the Nicolaisum sect of early Christianity. This sect warranted a mention in Revelation 2 where they were used as an example of some sects proffering false teachings. The sect was not named after the Turkish St. Nicholas, but instead for a deacon of the church in Jerusalem. Unpausing. Besides the mentions of the date fruit, the Romans had another use for the area. During the First Jewish-Roman War, fought between 66 and 73 AD, Abdullah was captured by the Roman army. They would then resettle Jewish defectors there. The Madaba map, near the unlabeled icon, had date palms growing in the area. And to this day, these date palms, likely descendants from those originally planted by Herod, still grow in the area. And that's it for the place known as Shatim. Just after the mention of Shatim, and after the spies departed, they came across a woman named Rahab. 
The biblical text lists her occupation as being of the seedy sort. While I normally would just skip over this, there's something worth noting. Later, rabbinic writers claimed her occupation wasn't of the world's oldest type, but she was instead simply an innkeeper. This would better explain how the spies ended up under her roof. Well, more accurately stated, hiding on her roof, and left the spies with one less thing they would have to explain to Joshua upon their return to the encampment at Shittim some days later. There is an alternate interpretation of her occupation, and that's that she wasn't at all literally engaged in the profession mentioned in Joshua 2, but instead she was a paid practitioner of the Canaanite polytheistic religion, a sorceress, or the like or, in a more figurative sense, the occupation listed. And while I'm covering her, there were some Midrashic writers who claimed that Rahab was one of the four most beautiful women the world has ever known, along with Sarah, Abigail, and Esther. This would certainly explain how she had such influence over the king of Jericho. Some of these writers would also claim that after the Israelites invaded, sacked Jericho, and spared her family, Rahab would convert to Judaism. Such a conversion wasn't unheard of. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, a priest in a competing religion, did it too. Then, something even more controversial, and not at all supported in any biblical text, these writers posit that after the invasion and her conversion, She married Joshua, but they don't stop there. Their descendants are said to have included the prophets Jeremiah, Hilkiah, and Ezekiel, along with the prophetess Huldah, a somewhat compelling story. But the biblical text makes no mention of Joshua having any sort of wife, let alone a Canaanite. This would go against everything he was telling the Israelites. In fact, there's no mention of him even having a family. Though, he was the source of the quote, As for me and my house, which does at least imply he had a family. All of this provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week, when I'll continue working through the history of the people, places, and things found in the book of Joshua. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.